0: Lord we go through seasons of life sometimes just days sometimes mornings sometimes hours sometimes weeks where we ask you what you're doing (laughs) what are you doing what's your plan why have you why have you brought us to you how have you purposed us and when you Speak to us. We want us to listen to your presence. Your presence is no different in the mountaintops than in the valleys. Always you are there. God, whether there are 50 gathered or five or two or one of us just racking our heads over something, your presence is just as near to us. God, we praise you and thank you for that. We thank you that you do not give up on your people. We pray that we would have hearts open to listen to what you would ask of us today. We pray that I would be true to your word, that I would help us better understand the words that Paul wrote to his church in Ephesus. In your son's name, amen. All right. I like this. I don't even know if I like standing, but I like this. <laughs> I chose this text because we're going through this series in the Holy Spirit. Right? We've, we've gone through the hopeless heart. We've understood how Jesus and the Spirit work together. And then what, last week we talked about the con- confessing heart. Think of this as the other side of the same coin of confess- confession, the confessing heart forgiveness Paul ends this at the very end he finally says be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you so forgiveness comes at the very end of this it's it's a key but it's an outcome of something else see I could get up here and I could just say look you guys need to forgive each other and I could just drill that in over and over and over again, I wouldn't be telling you anything new. Everybody who's been part of a church, anybody who's gathered together, anybody who's grown up with this stuff, understands we ought to forgive each other. That we ought not to be bitter. The problem is that we don't know that we shouldn't do it. It's that we're stuck on how, or should I forgive this thing? I know I'm supposed to forgive, but should I forgive this particular horrific thing that happened to me? Right? That doesn't seem like there's justice there if I forgive this. Johnny, you just asking me to ignore this. Is is this the way for power to have its way in the world and for me to, to become little and insignificant, like I don't matter? That's not that's not what it is at all. Forgiveness is an evidence of an it's an outcome of a way of being. So this whole section, Paul, Paul has set up in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he said, this is the doctrine, these are the truths of what it means to be Christian. And then just prior to this, he says, the most important thing is that we have unity, that we see that we're members of one body, that we see that we're together. And then he jumps into this reminder where he urges the Ephesian church, he says, I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So he's saying this, he's saying there's two ways of being. One way is to disregard all of the spiritual, right? Our our way of being, our understanding of our way of being is our spirituality. Whether we we think of it that way or not, if you're a total atheist and you only believe in the physical, you are saying that the physical is my way of being. Only what can be explained is my being. And, And you come up against these questions and you look for physical answers and every atheist who comes up against these questions is going to go, there's certain things that I can't understand in the physical. Right? And so then they're going to make an explanation of the things that they couldn't see. They're going to have a certain way of thinking about their life. And what Paul is saying, he says, there's two ways of thinking. One is utterly futile. You are the center of all of your construction of everything. And he says they're just as spiritual. There's two different ways of thinking. They're two spiritual ways of understanding our being. But what you have to understand is that we are all spiritual. We are all believing that there is something beyond the physical nature of ourselves. We get to the end of the physical, and that we can't understand it all. And so he's saying, don't live as the people who have denied that there's any spirituality, the people that have said that they are the center of everything. He says, don't do that. You've let that that go. And then what he does is he says, here's some evidences, and we're going to work back from the evidence, right? Here's the evidences. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So the first evidence that you may be living as a way that the Gentiles do, as a way that those who don't believe in Jesus do, is that you're having a hardening of heart. Literally, the root for this is petrified, that your your heart has become petrified. It has a loss of sensitivity. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. So what he's saying is, you have a numbness inside of you if you're living as the Gentiles lived. What the... What, What happens when you don't have an expression or an understanding of Jesus is that you are the center of your universe. And if something has hurt you, you wall it off, and you proceed down the path that's going to be best for yourself. Right? Think of it like scar tissue, right? If 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 our joints, if we break an arm and we don't pay attention for it to mend well, we have all this tissue that grows up around it. It actually restricts the movement. It it creates an area where you lose sensitivity, you lose feeling, or a callus. Right when things get hit enough times, or for guitar players, the pads of your fingers, right, you develop a callus and you actually lose the sensitivity in those spaces. He's saying, if you continually to live your life denying the reality of your existence, the spirituality of yourself, that there is a creator God who created you, slowly but surely, there will be an ignorance that develops. You will lack an ability to feel outside of yourself. Just as the callous can't feel well the things outside of us, you as a soul, you as a person, will become more and more insensitive to the spirits and the natures of other people. You will lose that sensation. And he says, then what will happen is you become increasingly insular inside of yourself, entombed in yourself, and you will be given over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity, and you will be full of greed. Well, he's just stating, he's just logical. He's saying if you become, if you retreat into your own dark space, you're going to feed more and more and more off yourself. Your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own perceptions of everything will gear how your attitudes are geared towards your life, towards each other. And you will begin to desire things to feed yourself, and they will have less and less and less impact on you. Right? Because you are becoming less sensitive. Nothing will feed you enough for you to be full. So that's the first thing he's laying out. He's saying there's these evidences... And when you can see this, you can realize that somebody is living in such a way that they are not understanding their true nature. Another way of putting this is saying, when you become a Christian, when you have what we call the baptism of the Spirit, you're under new management, right? Think of a business that goes through a management shift. Maybe some of you have been part of businesses that went through a management shift. Or you've seen a business that you frequent, a donut shop or a coffee shop, suddenly they're under new management. You could say, well, the new management, um, all the signs changed, they changed their logo, they rebranded, they got different employees, it's, it smells better in there, right? You could say, that, you, you could say well, that's what, what they wanted, but as you start to see all of those things, you go, oh, there's priorities that the new management has, right? The new management doesn't just want it to smell nice and have friendlier employees. The new management believes in listening to their customers. The new management believes that uh, in order to be a successful business, we need to listen to culture and have vegan food. They, they, they just they listen, and you can start to see their core values out of what they're doing. Right? They're presenting evidences to you that show what their values are. So if we as Christians live, even though we're baptized in the Spirit, if we live as if we're still under the old management, right? we're not presenting any evidences of our life that show the change. And he's saying, don't stop right now. If you keep doing this, what you will do is your heart will become more and more hardened. And eventually, though you are saved, you will be so numb to it that you'll leave it. You'll choose to leave your salvation. He's saying, don't do that. He says, you have a new way of life. And so he's jumping in as he's, seen, as he's seen this disunity, a lack of confession, a lack of forgiveness. And he's saying, remember, you're under new management. He says, in order for the new management to work, you have to lean on it. You have to believe in it. So stop comparing yourself to everything everyone else has. When a business goes under new management, sometimes there's a period of time at which nothing looks good, right? When a business is under major flux, there can be times where you've spent all your capital to sort of rebrand and rebuild. You've hired tons of staff. And if you were to then go and compare yourself to another business at that point, you would say, well, we're dying, we're dying. And then you come back a year later and you can see that business begin to flourish because they've gone down to the foundation of it, and they've changed everything to bring health. And now you have to let it grow to see the health, right? What some of us do in our lives, though, and what I think the Ephesian church was doing, is they're saying, we're living in this new upside-down kingdom, and it hurts. It's painful. We feel like a minority around us. Nobody understands us. And then they begin to say, I, I'm going to make a business deal that wasn't very fair because it gets me ahead because I need the money. And they start to do things. They start to hold grudges and remove people from community. And they start to do things that take care of themselves because they're comparing themselves to successful non-believers. Right? I think a lot of us, this is, this is a warning to me, that as we look around and as we begin to get down on ourselves or wonder what's going on, we have to remember, don't compare yourself. To the cultures of the world. Remember, you're under new management, right? Appreciate what you've got. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. So he's talking about a way of life. This idea of being under new management is a whole new way of life. Some of us are still in the process of rebuilding our life under our understanding of Jesus from the ground up, right? We, when we first became Christians, when we first were baptized, when we first came as citizens, we changed things on the surface so it looked like we had right behavior. We even thought we were doing the things we needed to do. And then what happens is God in his grace actually knocks the cart out. He, he knocks the ladder out from under us. And we've fallen over and we're laying on the ground, right? And what we tend to do is we tend to and get angry and get frustrated saying, I cannot believe this is happening to me. Because we're still living under the culture of our old management, right? And so what we need to understand is, God in His grace is doing what He's doing to you to build you up on His foundation. His foundation is permanent. If we're lying on the ground complaining and moaning, we don't realize what we've got, right? And so that's what... If if I can do one thing today, that when I was studying for this, I was just overwhelmed by the reality of what we've got. That transcends anything I'm looking at in this room, that transcends anything I'm dealing with at home, that transcends my financial situation, that transcends my friendships, that transcends what people think of me in my life and, quote, the mess I've made of it according to them. It transcends... All of that. And Paul says, this is your new self. You've put on a new self. He says, some of you are living within the new self, looking back to the old self and wishing you could go back into it. He says, you can't do it. You're just wasting your time. If you've professed belief in Jesus, it's like a a snake that's shed its skin. Right? What use is it for a snake that has shed that skin to try and crawl back into it. What good is that going to do? He literally calls it, he says this, he says, your self, your old self is dead. It's dead. Right? He says, put it off. Put off that old self because it's not going to do any good for you. And he says, if you continue to retreat back into that, what you're doing is you're just kind of, it's like, it's like you're going back into the darkness and you're just letting the mold grow all over the new stuff you've got. You're letting the devil get a foothold, he says. So, we have to understand that we are taking on a new self and we're putting off an old self that we can't go back to, that it's not going to give us anything. We can, we can retreat back into that space and we can try and try and try to have the life we used to have. But at the end of it, what we're going to find out is that we still believe in a God. When we get to the end of ourselves, He's still there. And we're going to realize we have just made a mess out of everything in the darkness. That we will open the door, when we open that door from that dark room we retreat into, we'll see the light spilling out on everything. And we'll see what we have. So I would pray for some of us, that as we that as we have found that we've crawled back into those places, that God in His grace would actually obliterate the darkness we're in. That we just obliterate it. However low we need to go, take us as low as we need to go, God, so that you can remind us what you're really about, so that we'll stop paying attention to the crowd. Eugene Peterson calls this idea of the world, he calls it the crowd. A lot of times we just pay attention to the crowd. We're, we're, We're having a good day, and then we are around somebody who's way more successful than us, and now we're having a terrible day. That quick. Great morning, great time with our kids, get a phone call from dad, judging where we're at in life, terrible day. Comment from wife, husband, comment from kid that they they think you're the worst parent ever, terrible day, right? Like we are so fragile in the moment to moment of our day because it's not that we're not standing on a good foundation. It's that we don't understand what we've got. That's our problem is that we don't understand what we've got. So what do we have? He talks about it this way. He says, you have the Spirit, right? And you have been, the new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And he says, the Spirit, down in verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I just want to take some time to think about this idea of the seal. Another way of, I looked at a translation by N.T. he calls this a mark, a brand, so that when we get to the end, we will have the brand on us. Think of cattle going through gates. The ones that have the brand on them will get picked out and put into the right pasture. I want you to understand this. By professing belief in Jesus and saying, I believe he is my savior, I believe that everything John's saying is true, you have been branded, you have been signed, you have been sealed. And nothing can take that away. So no bad day will take that away. No sin will take that away. Nothing, no matter how egregious, will take that away from you. That is the crux. That is the most fundamental. And it may seem wildly unjust to you when you think about other murderers, thieves, abusers, It might seem wildly unjust, but think about it for yourself. Think about it for yourself. We have a God who has said, you can't do anything that will get you far enough away from me that I don't want you to come back. I always, always, always want you to come back. He says, so don't give the devil a foothold. Don't believe that you're not good enough. Don't believe that you're not worth it. Peterson's calls, he says in this section where it talks about, so he says, You've been signed, sealed, and delivered, which to me, like, just made me think about the Stevie Wonder song. Um, But it's like, that's the level. Like, think about what Stevie Wonder is saying in that song, right? It's yours, right? Like, it's done. I've said it. It's a promise. It's happening. Because here's the thing if we actually believe in the promise that Jesus had for us, we will live out of that. We will get to that rock bottom. God will take us down to that place where everything else is stripped away. And all that will be left when the building is shattered that we've hidden in in darkness is his light shining down on us. We have to understand that for any of the rest of this to make sense. You cannot go and confess. You cannot go and forgive by being asked by me or somebody else in the church to do it the only thing that will compel you to show that evidence is going to be believing and leaning on the promise of the new management. That the new management has secured your employment, so to speak, and they have a vision for the prospering of this company. And they've hired you to be a part of it, no matter how everything else looks around you the core values, the core vision that they have is going to bring you into that place of health and wellness in eternity with them. But it's so backwards the way it works, it's so upside down, right? By taking on the new self and putting off the old self, we have to ignore the values of culture that are contrary to the new management. We have to say, I get that that's working, but I don't have the same value system. Myself is not the center of my universe. Jesus is the center of my universe, and he asks me to do these things, so I'm going to go do them. Whether they're good for me or not good for me, I'm still going to do them. Yes, your parents will not understand you. Yes, sometimes your spouse will not understand you. Yes, your children will not understand you. You will be doing countercultural things when you live in the kingdom. So that, that is a component. But here's the second piece. Once you're signed, once you believe in the promise, you have to believe that the Spirit is also a deposit. Now, where do I get that? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about the Spirit being a deposit. It says that when when the Spirit is given to you, it's like a deposit in a bank account, right? Right? So if I have a deposit in the bank account, theres I mean, Jesus told multiple parables about this, right? He said he would give money to different, a manager would give money to different employees, right? And which are the ones that get praised at the end? The ones who do something with the deposit. Not because that he praises the one who make 1% interest as the one who triples what they've got but the one who hides it because they're afraid of the master and they're afraid of following him and they're afraid of doing what he asks, those are the ones that he says, you don't have any interest in what I've given you. You don't know what you've got. You didn't do anything with it. And so we we have to understand that we've been sealed and we have a promise and we also have a deposit. And then we can begin to live authentically. We can begin to live what's, what he calls walking in purity. And I, I think that the idea of walking in purity is misconstrued by us. We tend to think of it as, I need to be perfect. But I want us to understand this. When we live in the spirit, think of it more like we are walking toward purity. Right? When, when I think of the experiences of confession and forgiveness and what they've brought they have illuminated my sin and other people's sin in the most vulnerable you could call it gross disgusting base way and what they've done is they've said this is what we're actually working with can we all agree that this is what we're working with if we keep pretending that we're working with something else we're never going to get anywhere right we're never going to get anywhere at all because We're making what Peterson calls a pretense. Don't have any pretenses anymore. Live authentically. It says, therefore each of you, in verse 20, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. The falsehood for us isn't that we're lying to each other like horrible lies. The falsehood for us is that we're pretending everything's okay because we just believe we either don't want to trouble somebody else with our stuff, Or that it's actually not a big deal and we're just making it a big deal. But whatever it is, we go through life wanting to have a veneer of everything being okay because we're listening to American culture that tells us that everything should be okay or you're a failure. If your life is not okay, you're a failure. And so what we present is a church to our community that is removed, is dishonest, is utterly hypocritical. We're not satisfied internally. We're not living out of a promise because we're not being even real with ourselves. So the first thing we have to do is we have to say, I'm going to promise to live in the new self, not the old self. That means I'm going to be utterly real with myself. I'm going to be real in myself in such a way that if I didn't have Jesus, I would probably just want to go do myself in. It's that bad. Because when we all think about who we actually are, we're miserable without Jesus. everything we've tried to do hasn't gotten us where we wanted it to go. And when we got everything we wanted, it didn't turn out to be as good as we thought. Right? On our own, we have become miserable without Jesus. Thank God we have the Spirit. Thank God we've been given the Spirit as a seal and as a deposit. Now, some of us are still wrestling with just the seal. Just the fact that I can't believe, John, even as you're saying it to me, I say, yeah, but. I'm uh, Really? I'm really guaranteed to get in heaven? I am saying right now, you are gathered here to worship Jesus because he has promised you will be with him into eternity. Period. I know that. I know that, that I know that, that I know that, that I know that you are promised that. And then some of you are saying, okay, now I'm scared with what to do with this deposit. Okay? I, I, get that, I get that I'm saved, I get that I am, okay, I think I'm believing that, but when you're actually asking me to lean on it, your business is in full rebuild, now you're handing out business cards, now you're talking about how great it's going to be, now you're talking about the core values, now you're talking about everything to other people, now you're sharing with your family, don't worry honey, it's going to be okay, they're in a rebuild, we're under new management, I really believe in what they're doing. You are in a vulnerable situation when you do that, right? You are in a vulnerable space where everyone else in the world is going to say, I don't see it. I'm sorry, Ellen. I'm telling Elijah. I'm sorry, Megan. I don't see what you guys are about at Citizens. I don't see what you're about with being Christians in Portland. I don't get it. That's what you should expect them to say. Now, what do you do with the deposit that the Spirit has put in you. We have the Spirit indwined as a deposit. Where will it bring back those investments? How will that happen? Well, now is where he gives practical advice. He says it's not about independent achievement. It's about communal flourishing. That's what this whole second part is about, right? It's deeply personal to understand it, but it's utterly communal to do it. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down. We've all heard that line, right? You hear that at weddings all the time. You know, just don't go to bed angry. He's saying this. He's saying, you're as Christians in a church. You're gonna deal with human emotions. I'm surprised, and probably some of you are too, where it says, in your anger, do not sin. What it's saying is, when you're angry, don't sin. Not don't be angry. Not never get angry. Not don't get sad. Not, you know, don't be uh, anxious, right? It's saying when those emotions happen to you, you got to remember what you've got and the effect that that means they will have on you. Don't believe what they're going to do to you. You'd be living in the old self to do that. He says, put on the new self. In your anger, do not sin, don't And then he says, just act out of that. Work with the deposit, so to speak. Believe that you are saved in such a way that you can own completely, confess completely the sin. See the impact that the sin has had on the person you've sinned against. And not let it so define you that you retreat back into the old self and begin to buy into the old systems, the old miserableness that you've taught yourself. He says, that's where you go wrong. He says, you cannot do that. Don't let your emotions totally control you. So in a way, Christians are more authentic, ought to be more authentic than anyone else in the world. I want that to sink in. More authentic than anyone else. I couldn't like really deal with that when I thought about what that meant. Wait, I am allowed to be more truthful with who I am more honest of what I am to the world. I mean, to me, that flies in the face of what I've been taught growing up. You should present that everything's okay in your life. You have Jesus, right? You should present to everyone that's a tidy packaged box. This is what they're going to get, so you want to make sure it looks really good. Yeah, I understand that, fine. But the way that you're really going to move people, is by admitting first to yourself who you are and how much you need Jesus, relying on that as you reach to other people and be utterly authentic with them. No pretense, no justification for what you're doing. The only justification is Jesus. You say, I, Alex, I, Charles, I have no idea what to do. I don't know the answer. Here's what I know. Jesus has said to do this. The Bible has taught me this. The word of the God, God has said this. That's why I do what I do. I guarantee you when you live out of that kind of authenticity, what will happen is people will go, oh, not only do I like Alex or Charles, I'm really drawn to what they're into. They're authentically themselves, warts and all to me. And I don't meet people like that very often. Most people I meet get a pretense. They come up to me in a party and they say, da-da-da-da-da, and then the truth, right? Well, I know not everybody's into this, but I like this, right? Or I know that, um, look, it might sound like it's not a great job, but it's really great because of this. There's just all this pretense in front of who we are right? Everything from the image that we're putting on, the clothing that we're wearing, those are the most basic things but we have an emotional pretense we take a deep breath before we go in the door and go, okay, time to put on my game face right? Time to put on my company's coming over face, you know, like I have an urge to organize the bookshelf, right? And like in the last three minutes before somebody walks in the door, I'm like trying to like get that last thing right, or like play around with the lights, so like we all have this urge to have the pretense right because we're so convicted that the core is kind of a mess, right? <laughs> it's kind of a mess. We have, to, we have to get to that place first, and then we have to see the power of the Spirit to work healing on that. We're going to have a numbness. We're going to get so good at that pretense that all that's going to be left of us is veneer. Nobody can get to know us because there's nothing to get to know anymore. Because we, we actually don't even understand how to be real. We're so petrified if people find out who we actually are that we're not willing to confess. All right, so then where do we get to forgiveness? How do we get forgiveness out of this? And I want to talk about this first two stories. First is the woman caught in adultery. Uh, this is from John, if you want to turn in your Bibles, John 7, 53 through 8, um, verse 11. I'll just read it first. So as they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, so let's begin to tease this out from what we're learning about the Spirit and what the Spirit does. First of all, the Pharisees have a hardness of heart. That's pretty clear, right? The Pharisees have taken a woman... They don't even bring the man. There's two people in the act of adultery, for sure. They don't even bring the man out. So there's already a numbness of justice. This is not justice happening. This is injustice happening, right? Then they use her. They are so in themselves. They see Jesus as such a threat to their power structure, to their way of life, to their system, to their success, that they use anybody else they can. They find a woman. They catch her in adultery. They pull her out. And they make her stand, they humiliate her, they utterly humiliate them, her for their gain to test Jesus. So these are people who have believed the culture of the world that are going to claw and pick any way they can to get what they want. They have an utter numbness out of their continual selfishness. But, but they're rabbis. So they profess, the pretense is that we are a people. That live by Moses' law, which Moses' law is going to include, love each other as yourself, right? And so Jesus calls them on their pretense. He says, we're not going to get anywhere with you until you admit who you actually are, then we can start working, right? So he says, those of you who are without sin, throw the first stone. Well, it would be ridiculous for a rabbi to admit that they don't have sin, right? Everybody has sin. So he dispels the situation that quickly, but but they all walk away they don't they don't look for forgiveness they don't say you have so moved me jesus thank you for convicting me of the fact that i have so much pretense in my life that i'm such a hypocrite can you please show me the way this new way the new self can you show that to me they don't make that decision they retreat back into their darkness. In their numbness, they willfully go back into the darkness once they're foiled. And then, Jesus, the one person who actually could condemn the woman, none of the rabbis have the power, they're not God, they can't condemn her. They don't know her deeply and fully. The one person who can condemn her says, look, I don't condemn you. You're forgiven. You're under new management, right? And then out of that new management, what do I want you to do? Leave your sin. Walk to purity. Walk in purity, so to speak. But he doesn't, he's not expecting her to be perfect right away. He says, leave your life of sin. Begin to dismantle everything you've built on that is on a poor foundation. Begin to just examine and tear all of those pieces of your identity that are rooted to things that aren't Jesus and just throw them away. Okay. Now, let's jump to another story. Here's, Here's a man way down the line. We don't know what happened with this woman, right? We hope that she became a follower of Jesus, one of his disciples and his crowd and his group, that her life was totally changed. But we can look at somebody like Stephen. Stephen was one of, the, one of the group of the apostles in Acts, right? Who is baptized through the Spirit, who's utterly moved to be part of a new way of life, has taken on the new self. And we get fast forward to what this looks like, what the evidence looks like at the end of his life. And if you want to look at this story, it's in Acts 7, near the end of Acts 7. He is being stoned to death. And he so believes in what he's got that even in the face of total injustice, he stands on truth to his death. He preaches the most amazing sermon. Saul, which becomes Paul, Saul is standing on the sidelines, hearing all of it, while he's still persecuting Christians. As he's dying, the, 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 the doors of heaven seem to open for him, and he sees, this is what that means to me, I was sitting there thinking about it, I go, what does that mean? Like the doors of heaven opening, the gates of heaven opening. He is utterly convinced that he has salvation. Stephen is utterly convinced as he's been stoned to death that the promise and the, the sign-sealed-deliver nature of the Spirit is a reality. And once he realizes that that's a reality, that he has nothing to lose he is able to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross, which is, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? Forgive them. The people that are literally stoning him to death, he wants to be forgiven. So, we could have any number of things that seem impossible to forgive. Bitterness against people. Being left. Being dismissed being told we're not good enough, relationships that have fallen apart, people that tell us that we're crazy. Nothing comes even close to that. Nothing comes even close to that. And we see the key for it is that he is convinced of what he has. So the the question we have to ask is not, I ought to forgive, therefore I need to forgive. How do I do this? The question we need to ask is, Do I understand what I've got? And am I willing to cultivate the garden, so to speak, right? I have a garden bed. My life is a garden bed. If I want it to grow, I've got it. I'm saved. But my my life is full of calloused, petrified rocks down in there of all of the bitterness and numbness and hatred. And if I leave all that stuff in there, my garden's not going to grow very much. I have less real estate, right? The Spirit is in us, convicting us that you have a garden to grow. Now do something with it. And that's what confession and forgiveness are acts of. They're acts of cultivating that garden daily, of saying, I'm not going to let rocks that cover my garden and will stop things from growing. I'm not going to let them stay there. What I've got is too good. This soil's too fertile. It'll grow too well. It's ridiculous for me. It's when you have a baptism of the Spirit, when you say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and you allow that kind of misery to continue in your life, what you're doing is you're disregarding the power of what Jesus can do. I am just as guilty of this. And the things that you're actually upset about in your life The things that you're upset about, you have to examine. And you have to say, if all of this is from God and God is good, what is he asking me to do? And for certain things, he's asking you to confess. With certain things, he's asking you to forgive. And with certain things, he's asking you to endure because what you're expecting is not what he's delivering. He's bringing goodness, but maybe not on the same timeline, Right? You're looking over at your neighbor who's sprayed, you know, tons of fertilizer and everything to get things to shoot up really fast. And you're comparing your slow-growing garden to them and you're saying, what I've got isn't good enough. But you're not seeing the long game. So we need to examine our lives and we need to understand, are the things that I'm angry about, things that, that I need to understand and see that even God's judgment is goodness in refining me, or are the things that I'm bitter and enraged about things that God is also bitter and enraged about? And he's saying, I told you to get rid of that a long time ago. Are you finally angry enough to do something about this? It's not saying don't be angry. He's saying let your anger be directed at sin and then do something about it. Work with the deposit. So that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to ask us as a community, I'm convicted that if we begin to live out of what we've got, if we see that it is actually enough, there's nothing more that I'm asking from you, right? I'm asking you to believe that the promise you have is good enough, not to deliver to some expectation to have some kind of pretense. Actually, what I'm asking for is, and what I believe Paul is asking the Ephesian church for is he's saying, be totally authentic, stop hiding sin, Stop pretending you're great when you're not. Be totally authentic. Get together and see what the Word is telling you to do. If we're authentic with each other and we admit what, we actually, what our preferences actually are, what we actually love and we're real with each other, then in community around the Word we can say, those are all wonderful things. Or we can say, I get that you have that preference. I think it shows an idol that you have. Would you like to work on removing that? And as a community, if we're united around the new management, if we're, un- if we're all believing that we ought to be in the new self, we can pick out where the dead snake skin is that we've shed, and we can say, that's dead skin in your life. Don't go back into it. You're going back into it again. We can be that kind of people to each other. And actually, that's not a condemnation of each other. It's an incredible encouragement, right? If we can get in the trenches with each other and start to pick around the Word and say, I see your life. Thank you so much for sharing it. I have the same crud going on in my life. I have the same stuff in my life. Right? I, have, I, I know that Jesus is taking care of it. I'm working to uproot the things that I can uproot. I'm praying for him to uproot the things I can't uproot. I'm asking for you to invade my life and get in there with me, and let's work on this together. We're all about Jesus. We're Jesus, people. Let's get on it. That's what Paul is saying. He's urging them, and, and he gets intense about it because he really loves and cares about them. Jesus died for Stephen. Jesus died for that woman caught in adultery. He died for them. He went to the ultimate extreme. Tim Keller has a great analogy, in the middle, will end. He has a great analogy where he says, he goes, look, let's just explain this in a different way. We're, we're on earth, right? We're hurtling through space at like millions of miles an hour, Right? At any moment, I guess we could probably just, like, run into some huge thing and explode, right? So there's that. Secondly, we all are living with trap doors under us that could just open at any moment, and we would fall to our, like, ultimate demise, right? We're all living with these just... We, we don't have control over when we live or die. We don't have control over anything, right? He says, this is the life you're living, right? To believe anything else is utterly ridiculous. Like, you are living a life where you're totally out of control of... of whether you're alive or dead, right? You can convince yourself you have all this kind of stuff, but we're all living with trapped doors underneath us that could open any point. He says, and, and, and you've got a God who said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. For, for you, it's not going to happen, right? For you, you've got life eternal. For you, I can bring you out of that scenario. In fact, I have brought you out of the scenario. Do you believe I brought you out? Yes, you're out. Now go live. That's the the paradigm of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, the seal it gives. And then he he says, well, you could do nothing, but that would be like a total waste of your life. Like, let's get going. Let's share this. Let's get out there. It's not do good works to be saved. It's we're saved. So let's go make something out of it. That is the gospel. That is the thing that every day we wake up and we have to reframe. I'm sorry, you guys, no matter how many days you go through, you're going to have to reframe that. Culture is teaching us the exact opposite every single moment. It's saying, do to achieve. And gospel is saying, it's done. Go live out of it. That's the difference. Let's pray. God, I pray that some of these words had some impact. That you are steering our church in a direction. You're bringing us to, to, to something that works out your mission and your purpose in Portland. You've asked us to step completely out of the people that we were. So that we can see the old self that we were believing. See the things we've been comparing. See the ways at which we've just been trying to go to deadness to look for life. We thank you that you've brought judgment. We thank you that you've illuminated deadness. I pray that we would not leave this church today immediately swayed by the sudden, short lived attractions. That that circumstances, that relationships, that life can give us so that we'll feel good right now. And instead, that we would believe so deeply in your promise that we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves for others. To bear and make ourselves more vulnerable. And to forgive each other of the most egregious things that they've done to us. So that we can get on with it so that we can move forward in fullness, so that we can bring and be part of the beauty that you're working, so that we can see goodness and participate in goodness. God, help us to look at our garden plots and illuminate to us the things that you're asking to root out and tackle and face the fears that we don't want to touch. And for those things that grow slowly, for those areas that don't get enough, seem don't seem to get enough light, Lord, give us patience in the promise that You've given us a good bed, that it's enough, that it's the bed You wanted us to have for Your purpose for the garden You're growing and bringing back to this earth. God, we pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen.